This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The New Statesman. Welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Alona Ferber, Senior Editor at The New Statesman. Earlier this month, we published a magazine with the cover, Being Jewish Now. At this time of crisis in the Middle East, with divisions over the Gaza war and rising anti-Semitism, we asked a group of writers, thinkers and activists to reflect on the question of what it means to be Jewish and on the left today. In this episode of the podcast, we speak to five of the writers who contributed to this essay collection, delving deeper into the themes explored in the magazine. We will be hearing excerpts of their writing throughout this podcast, but to read the full essay collection, please follow the link in the show notes. The first person we spoke to was Fania Oz Salzberger, who wrote the essay, This Generation Will Never See Gazans and Israelis Become Fellow Citizens. Fania is a writer and academic, and the daughter of the late Israeli novelist Amos Oz. Hello, Fania. Thank you so much for joining us today. Where are you speaking to us from? I'm talking from my house in Zichon Yaakov on Mount Carmel in Israel. Fania, you open your essay in The New Statesman with a quote from your father. Would you be able to read that for us? It's the first paragraph of the piece. Yes, yes, with pleasure. I'm a peacenik, not a pacifist, my late father, the novelist Amos Oz, used to say. Pacifists turn the other cheek because they think that war is the worst thing in the world. I don't turn the other cheek because for me, not war, but aggression is the worst thing in the world. And aggression must sometimes be defeated by force. It's such a powerful opening. How would you relate this in terms of the current war that's being fought? The current war that's being fought in Gaza, and I have to add also in Israel, because we are getting rockets all the way up to Tel Aviv and north of Tel Aviv. This current war is one of the ugliest, um, meanest, uh, most unfortunate ever fought in our region. It is certainly the worst war that I have passed in my lifetime, which has already included several wars. I think that there is uh, no alternative for this ugly war to be fought because the only alternative that I can see 
is Hamas staying in power in the Gaza Strip next door to Israel. And this is not something that we can uh, accept anymore, not after the 7th of October. Your essay speaks about the three ways that you feel Israelis are currently fighting alongside the war that you just described uh, in Gaza. Can you please read out a section for our listeners where you explain what those three wars are? Yes, here it goes. Israelis of my mindset are caught in three wars. First and foremost, we are fighting Hamas. Second, we are struggling against the worst government Israel has ever had. More Israelis than ever believe that Benjamin Netanyahu's travesty of a cabinet must go. His government spent the last 10 months prior to the Hamas attack trying to undermine Israel's democracy through a pseudo-legal putsch against the Supreme Court with a view to impairing the civil and human rights of both Arabs and Jews in the name of rampant nationalism. And of course, Alona, the third war, shoulder to shoulder with Jews and humanists worldwide, is against anti-Semitism, now clearly bonded with burning hatred of Israel. Do you think we're seeing progress in any of those fights? You mentioned that obviously the most immediate war, which is against Hamas in Gaza, the fight against Netanyahu, the struggle against anti-Semitism. Are we seeing progress on any of those fronts? Or do you think we're getting anywhere? Well, uh, we are certainly not getting anywhere with uh, global anti-Semitism. I'm beginning with the third war. Uh, I'm afraid that this is becoming one of the darkest times for Jews ever since the Second World War and the Holocaust. And this is going to stay for some time longer because whatever happens between Israel and Palestinians, this ugly, seedy, deep-rooted anti-Semitism has now reared its head. Uh, I think that paradoxically, we might be getting some progress in the war with uh, Hamas because I believe that soon enough there would be new talk about a hostage deal and hopefully a humanitarian a recess in the war. Uh, we are already beginning to hear some sounds to that effect uh, as we speak. Uh, and I think Hamas would be desperately trying to save what is left of its skin. Hamas is still alive and kicking, but it has taken uh, quite a lot of uh, blows. Uh, and of course, the pressure in Israel to go back to a host hostage deal is great. Having said that, Hamas has been lying uh, throughout, uh, also uh, in relation to the previous hostage deal. So I'm not wholly optimistic about uh, the future of uh, any kind of uh, conversation with them. Uh, my heart aches for Gaza, for its north and for its south, which is now being uh, under Israeli assault. Um, I do believe that we are trying, perhaps not trying as hard as we ought, to spare the lives of innocents. Not all citizens are innocents. But many of them are, and of course the children are, the younger children are. You end your piece, Fania, by saying that the one-state solution was gunned down on the 7th of October. You say that neither in this generation nor in the next will Gazans and Israelis become fellow citizens. But you say that fortunately the two-state solution is still alive and that any peace at first would be a loveless peace, but that history will take it from there. 
It's a very powerful way to end your essay and also a poignant and sad way to end it. How hopeful are you for this loveless piece? Well, in the longer term, you know, our grandchildren will still have a very dark history to, uh, to carry on their shoulders on both sides. But we have seen elsewhere in the world that a, a slow healing over generations is doable. In this present generation, you know, it is so interesting, Alona, that when my father passed away five years ago, almost exactly to the day in uh, 2018, People were saying uh, that the two-state solution he had promoted all his life is dead and gone, that there will be no two-state solution, that the only uh, horizon is one state, and of course the Israeli nationalists have a different uh, interpretation of one state than the Palestinian nationalists. Today we seem to realize that one state is no longer on the cards. It will be neither Palestine from the river to the sea, nor the greater Israel from the river to the sea. And my father may have been right all along in saying that a two-state solution is uh, maybe a bad solution, a not fully just solution, an imposed solution, both sides would be dragged kicking and screaming towards this solution, but it's the only solution we have. Thank you so much, Fania. Thank you for talking to us and thank you very much for your essay. You are most welcome, Alona. Thank you for having me. Hi, Sam. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Where, where in the world are you joining us from? I'm in Brooklyn, New York. Sam Adler-Bell is the co-host of the podcast Know Your Enemy. His written work has appeared in the New York Times, New York Magazine and the New Republic. His essay for The New Statesman was titled Jews in the Diaspora Must Resist the Inhumanity Being Done by Israel in Our Name. And um, you, your essay was so powerful and personal in, in the symposium. It opens with a story about your late grandfather. Um, could you um, read out that first paragraph for our listeners? Sure. Since the brutal Hamas attack on October 7th and the onset of Israel's genocidal retaliation, I have thought often of my grandfather, who died in 2020. Jewish mourners tell each other, may their memory be a blessing. But I am probably not alone in experiencing the memory of certain loved ones as a mixed blessing, an irksome comfort, like a pain between the shoulder blades reminding you every morning, with a strangely bittersweet nostalgia, of all the blissful days you've endured it before. What I have been unable to stop thinking about through these awful days are the arguments I would be having with my grandfather if he were still alive. Can you tell us a little bit, first of all, about your grandfather? Who, who, what was he like? Who was he? Uh, my grandfather was a lovely and difficult man. Um, uh, I loved him a lot. Um, he uh, spent his life sell selling life insurance and lived in New York City and New Jersey. Um, when he died, he was living in Fort Lee. But he was my main connection to the to Jewishness, to my own Jewishness. Um, he's the one who really encouraged my father to raise us with Judaism of a sort, a sort of secular Judaism. Um, he was a conservative guy in many respects, um, and um, a very strong in his Zionist beliefs. I'm also somewhat of a 
stubborn and argumentative person. Um, perhaps not surprisingly, as a uh, writer um, on politics, and that meant that a lot of our conversations were were arguments. But it's a sort of relationship that I imagine might be familiar to a lot of listeners, um, where you know our the, our love language was arguing with each other, um, and as much as we would try to convince the other person. Um, neither of us would ever surrender. That, sound, that sounds like a wonderful, wonderfully healthy dynamic between <laughs> a, a grandfather and his grandson. You, your essay, um, you imagine, well, you kind of, you imagine for the, for the reader, you talk about if your grandfather was still alive, how you'd still be arguing with him about the ongoing war. Could you read for our listeners um, another section of your essay where you kind of really d- dive into the dynamics of that? Sure. I find myself getting angry, fiercely so, at the things I imagine he would say, about Israel's unfettered right to defend herself, about the suffering we endured to acquire that right, about my own naive soft-heartedness, my insulting ingratitude towards him and our ancestors, who had to become hard and realistic to bequeath a world safe for the Jews. So much for that, Grandpa, I hear myself responding ruefully. Perversely, in imagining this interminable argument, which we maintained for more than a decade before his death, I find myself missing him terribly and wishing so much he were alive to annoy me to exhaustion. Many Jews must know this experience, in which bonds of love are sustained through painful, tempestuous argument, when the only alternative to acrimony is estrangement, absence, loss." And I suspect that many Jewish leftists of my generation have experienced a relationship like this, in which our blooming awareness of Israel's criminality, our opposition to the authorizing myths of Zionism, was forged in a crucible of wounded attachment. What would you, you talk there about a kind of generational shift in attitudes, what what would you attribute that to? It's hard to say exactly, and I'm sure it's different for many people, but... um, in my experience in having these conversations with Jewish leftist peers, um, I think a lot of people grew up, especially if they grew up in a liberal or progressive household, um, um, and in a, even in a liberal or progressive Jewish tradition, they grew up hearing uh, a lot about our sort of ethical commitments, our commitments to justice, um, to equality, um, to even international justice, um, and repairing the world. I think a lot of young Jews heard that and really believed it and took it to be sort of core to their political and religious identity. And then at some point they were told something else that felt completely in in conflict with those ideas um, about Israel and about the exceptions that we ought to make for what Israel does in the world to the Palestinians, how that society is constructed. And there, that feeling of a, of a, irreconcilable conflict between the very values of justice that we were taught in our Jewish communities and the way that Israel and Zionism manifests in the world, that that contradiction was intolerable to a lot of young Jews and created these arguments with family members, uh, with faith leaders, um, with other kinds of figures in their life as a Jew, which is what I'm trying to what I'm, what I'm talking about here, um, I think a lot of young Jews can remember these sorts of arguments where 
the stories we were told about what it meant to be a Jew came into conflict um, with the sort of um, brutal, uh, the brutality that Israel inflicts on the world and um, the myths of Zionism that we were asked to believe in. Which is the kind of Zionism, or rather the, the Jewish state is a sort of, I don't know, you know, a place of justice and human rights, a kind of a good place, kind of in, in, in you know, in, in inverted commas, and this sort of yeah. realization that actually it's it's a place that is committing a lot of kind of a lot of harm. Yeah. Instead. That's right. Um, you write uh, in your piece that I have no family in Israel seems an accident of history, surely not a moral inflection sturdy enough to bestow non-complicity or indifference. I wondered if you if you think that. Um, this accident of history that your family ended up in, in the States allows you a, a distance that maybe others in the diaspora who do have that family connection maybe don't have. Yeah, I think that's probably true. I, I thought about that a lot uh, in the wake of the Hamas attack. Um, and, and a lot of the conversations I've been having with Jewish leftists since then, uh, part, of, part of the experience for them is fear uh, fears or mourning for people that they knew, um, or know. Um, I don't have that, but as I said, I, I, I think for, for myself, um, my grandfather had a lot of friends, um, in Israel, uh, and he, he talked about not making his life in Israel as sort of a failure of nerve, um, as a, as a sort of moral failing on his part, um, that, you know, if he was a better Jew, then he would have gone and made a life there. Um, and so, and so many people did make that choice for all kinds of reasons, uh, that are the product of history and historical circumstance and, and family relationships. And so, yeah, I, I'm conscious of, uh, the distance that some people and myself in the diaspora have from, you know, the experience of, of, of those who are living in Israel, though I think uh, that can be helpful <laughs> uh, to have some people involved in sort of the Jewish left and Palestinian solidarity uh, in the Jewish community um, who don't have that exact attachment. But I don't think that, I don't think that like a total disavowal of our relationship to Israel which calls itself the Jewish state, which authorizes itself on the basis of our own historical trauma, that that disavowal can really be sturdy or um, be comfortable, um, that we can totally um, um, that we can totally unburden ourselves of the connection to Israel, which the state itself insists upon. You know, f even if you feel, as I do in many ways, like Israel is not my state, that's a that's a relationship. I don't feel that way about other countries. I don't say <laughs> I don't say uh, you know France is not my state. Having a not state relationship uh, that you insist upon that feels important to your identity is still a, a part of your identity. I think diasporic Jews, myself included, haven't really been given the option to be morally agnostic about Israel. Um, Israel is is a question that arises, and um, and that and that that creates a bond, even if it's a bond um, that we wish wasn't there, or that um, we 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 wish to problematize. 
Yeah, even if it's a bond of sort of rejection of an idea, you're right. It's like nobody, and the and the, the I guess the paradox of that is obviously people say you know don't 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 assume Jews are connected to Israel. It's potentially anti-Semitic, but at the same time, you can't completely disconnect yourself as a Jew from Israel. So it's a, it's such a complicated relationship. Um, uh, you're right about suffering, that it's a meager moral teacher, but we learn its lessons anyway. And I wondered what lessons you're hopeful, or not even hopeful, what lessons you think will be learned from all of this suffering over the past few months? um, Well, I think the reason that I said that is that, um, you know, in the wake of uh, October 7th, there was immediately, at least in the American left, um, all this arguing about whether and how Jews could mourn the Israeli dead and whether mourning necessarily is part of, you know, creating the propaganda campaign for uh, the retaliatory war. Um, From my perspective, the question is not whether we can mourn, it's what we do with the mourning, what we do with grief. And I think that um, my experience of Judaism has always been thinking about what we do with grief, um, with historical trauma. And given that Israel justifies itself on the basis of the Holocaust, um, that that's the reason that we need a state, that we need to be strong um, and, and militarized and, and, and to protect ourselves. Um, that means that that question of what do we do with our suffering um, it's always already being asked. And so I felt that the question about October 7th was, yes, we feel grief, um, mad- sadness, anguish, um, but uh, what what ought we to do with it? Is war uh, and violence and revenge the only answer? Um, and from my perspective, of course it's not. It can't be. Um, and I'm hopeful um, that there are many... There are many Jews in the diaspora and hopefully in Israel as well um, who are who are fighting for a different answer, who are fighting um, to experience our grief as reminding us of our fragility and our vulnerability and the vulnerability that other people have too. And obviously the war um, has been just a nightmare of 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 creating more death, violence, and fragility. Um, and, and our experience of, of anguish and grief should draw us to reject. It should, it should spur us to reject the conditions that create more grief. Um, it should make us identify with others, others who grieve. So you're hopeful for some empathy and identification at least. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Empathy is a hard one to, to hope for in some ways because um, it's a really high bar. I think we throw the word around a lot, um, but really being able to imagine yourself in someone else's situation, their historical situatedness um, is, is almost impossible. But I think that, um, that grief is something that we can recognize in other people and pain is something that we can, we can know to have know that we have experienced and, and know how awful it is for others um, and some amount of imaginative 
identification does seem both necessary and possible. Thank you, Sam. Thanks a lot. Thanks for the for the piece and also for, for giving us a bit more time to talk it through. Thanks, Alona. Thank you. Hello, Omer. Thank you so much for joining us today. Where, where are you speaking to us from? I'm speaking from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Our next contributor is Omer Baltov, Professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Brown University. He is considered one of the world's leading authorities on genocide. For the New Statesman, he wrote the essay, both Netanyahu's cabinet and Hamas see this crisis as an opportunity. In your essay, uh, you mention a letter that you co-wrote in August called The Elephant in the Room. Can you explain for our listeners what that was trying to draw attention to? Yeah, so that letter was um, uh, issued on August 4th. So that's two months before the Hamas attack. And the background to that was the massive protests in Israel against the so-called judicial overhaul a reform or really a coup uh, attempt by the Netanyahu government to weaken the judiciary, um, strengthen the executive. Uh, and what we were trying to point out is that although the mass protests against it uh, were very impressive, they were kind of missing the point. Uh, and the, the point, the elephant in the room was the occupation. And in fact, the judicial hall overall itself was really about that. It was to weaken the judiciary, which was the only last bastion for the rule of law and democracy in Israel, so as to facilitate uh, accelerating settlements and eventual annexation uh, of the West Bank and and in the process, strengthening the regime of apartheid that already exists there. we did not know, of course, that two months later, that occupation would sort of explode in everybody's face. Uh, but that was what we were trying to point out at the time. You write in the piece, the Hamas attack was shocking, but not surprising. Could you continue that passage, read that out for our listeners, where you where you go into that? Sure. The Hamas attack was shocking, but not surprising since while it constituted a war crime and a crime against humanity, it was a manifestation of the structural and systematic injustice of Palestinian displacement since 1948, the 56-year-long occupation, and the 16-year siege of the Gaza Strip. What many of us had warned about finally came to pass. Nor is the extent of Israel's response surprising. This violence is not merely about destroying Hamas or punishing the Gazan population. It is about the refusal of Israeli leaders to consider any peaceful resolution to the conflict that would entail sharing the land in which 7 million Jews and 7 million Palestinians reside under radically different uh, legal and political systems. The destruction of Gaza is intended to ensure the perpetuation of occupation, settlement, displacement, and quite possibly ethnic cleansing. The the essay collection is premised on this this question around being Jewish now and and on the left. And you, when you're writing in your piece about the Israeli left, you say, um, you know, there's hardly any, there was hardly any anything left of the Israeli left before the 7th of, 7th of October, and even left, less now. Um, 
what do you attribute that disappearance to? And I guess another question is, has there, has there ever really been an, an Israeli left in a way? Like, has the left in Israel ever really been a, left, a real left wing, do you think? So to start with the second question, yes. In fact, uh, Israel had more of a left than uh, certainly the United States. Israel had a socialist left. Um, and so it was real left, not, not left in terms of being liberal, more liberal politically. In fact, the Israeli left, the, the old socialist left, uh, whether Mapam, which was on the left side of politics, of, of Zionist left-wing politics, or Mapai, which was more establishment under Ben-Gurion, they were left in the original sense that they were uh, socialists, that they, they, they believed in a socialist society, a kind of combination of socialism and democracy. Um, some of the left, uh, especially the left part of it, Mapam, were also much more liberal politically. But generally, I would say that the Israeli left uh, under Mapai for a long time was what they called in Israel security-minded. So they were not into the kind of messianism that we see now, uh, but they certainly believed that Israel should have as much territory as it can hold on to, and then it should settle it so that that territory would remain permanently under Israeli rule. And this was a left that never really wanted to uh, determine what Israel's final borders are. This was still kind of, one could negotiate that. Uh, and it depended, and, and that was the left that after 67, um, first under Eshkol and then under um, uh, Golda Meir, um, was very reluctant to give up the territories, which initially uh, it said, well, those are bargaining chips. Uh, we'll give them back for peace. And then they thought, well, maybe we can just keep them since we are so strong. Uh, but it was left in terms of social policies. Uh, and that changed over time. It began changing under Begin and even more so, of course, under Netanyahu, where the entire structure of the Israeli economy changed. So that's the sort of uh, original story of the left on a, on the head of a pin. Um, the um, Whether there is now uh, any potential left that would uh, arise after this uh, ongoing disaster because nothing is over yet and we have no idea still where this is heading to. I don't think things can go back to normal. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that Netanyahu would like them to go back to normal, but I don't think they can. But the question is which way they will go. I don't think that Netanyahu has a political future, but uh, uh, conceivably it could be even worse than Netanyahu. So conceivably Israel could become more right-wing. Uh, more authoritarian and more uh, um, similar to the likes of um, Ben Gvir and Smotrich. Uh, that's one possibility. Uh, the other possibility is that people will realize um, some of what I was just reading out, that that land between the Jordan and the sea is populated by two uh, groups uh, of equal size, 7 million Jews and 7 million Palestinians, that they're not going anywhere, nobody's leaving, uh, and that they have to learn to live together, otherwise they're doomed to keep killing each other, and it looks like they're killing more and more of each other each time. Uh, and that calls for a complete uh, change of the political paradigm, not the old left. The, the old left in Israel is dead but for something new. It won't be socialist, that's also dead. 
but something new, something that would actually be able to imagine a society where there's two states or, or one state or however there are, there are ideas, and I can talk about them, but uh, whatever it is, where there's peace and justice and dignity for all people living there and not that one half keeps the other half uh, under this oppressive, violent rule as it is right now. What do you do in the meantime, let's say towards this scenario, what do you do in the meantime with all the bad blood, with the, the decades of violence towards one another and certainly the, the really high levels of violence that, we're, that we've seen since the 7th of October? What would you do to kind of get beyond that or somehow to, to make so that people could live together? So first of all, you know, bad blood is um, obviously there is a huge amount of bad blood and, and fear, uh, terror of each other and rage. Uh, and you can sense it on both sides. But one has to say that it's not the first time and not the first place where peace was made right after there was a huge amount of killing and fear and terror and destruction. Uh, in some ways, that's the only way that you can persuade people that this is not the way to go if they don't want to keep living under these conditions. The, the transition, uh, more specifically, I would say, has to entail, first of all, uh, the removal of those who are entirely opposed to that. Uh, from political power. Uh, in, in, it is Hamas. Hamas is not a partner for negotiations. I, I, I don't believe that one can uh, talk with Hamas leadership anymore. I think they've been entirely discredited. It doesn't mean that Hamas will disappear. It won't disappear. It's a, it's, a, it's, it's a movement. It's a belief. But it can be weakened, and it can be removed as the hegemon of, um, of, of power in Gaza. And you have to remove the 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 band of um, um, Jewish supremacists and criminals who are afraid of being jailed like Netanyahu. Thank you. Thank you so much, Omel. And, and thank you for the piece as well. It was wonderful. We'll be back after the break with Chanda Prescott-Weinstein to hear her lessons on growing up Black and Jewish. If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all of our episodes ad-free on The New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back in a few minutes. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, Chanda. Thank you so much for joining us today. Where, where are you speaking to us from? The New Hampshire seacoast in northern New England in the US. It sounds beautiful. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein is a theoretical cosmologist and particle physicist at the University of New Hampshire. She wrote the essay, Lessons Growing Up Black and Jewish. 
and you speak in the essay about your the complexity of your identity. Could you tell us a little bit, first of all, about your family, your upbringing, and something that you cover in the essay, which is the history of your name? So one of my middle names is Sojourner. In fact, I, my my white Jewish grandmother wanted me to be named after Sojourner Truth. And there was a little bit of a back and forth between my two grandmothers about that. And so I ended up with two middle names, and one of them is Sojourner after the the abolitionist who self-emancipated Sojourner Truth. And, you know, the word Sojourner also pops up in Exodus in the the story that eventually becomes the basis for Passover. And so for me, it was almost like I was bound to to the holiday through my my own black heritage and my my black history. And that for me became a very strong influence of how I interpreted what it meant to be Jewish. You, in the piece you write, you tell a story about attending a protest at university and kind of in adulthood coming face to face with your Jewishness, but also your blackness at the same time. Can you tell us a little bit about that for, for our listeners? Yeah, I think something that's also not explicitly stated in the piece, but I think is highly relevant to the discussions that are happening now, is that the story I tell about attending a peace vigil organized by the Society for Arab Students when the second intifada began is at Harvard College. And um, obviously there are lots of discussions in the news about the experiences of Jewish students at, at Harvard right now. And really the experience that I had was I went to this peace vigil that was organized, co-organized by my friend who's a Palestinian German who was at the time the president of the Society for Arab Students. And it was really at that moment the level of critical discussion about Israel, Zionism, all of that was we have peace vigils and that's it. And during the moment of silence, a white Jewish woman disrupted the moment of silence, started screaming things about you people. And I was one of the people who went to confront her. And she explicitly spoke to me um, in terms that suggested that she didn't identify me as a Jew. She assumed I wasn't Jewish. Um, and obviously there were Jewish people at the event because she was there, right? So, um, but her assumption was because I was trying to address her disruption that I couldn't possibly be a fellow Jew because all the Jews were on one side. And there was also this element of me realizing in that moment that visibly I looked more like a lot of the Arab students who were there and I didn't look like the Jewish people who were there and that my brown skin marked me as different in, in Jewish spaces in a way that I, I was only just starting to, to come to terms with, um, but has continued to kind of shape my experience. And I should say I was at that point relatively new to being a regular participant in Jewish religious life. And in particular, going to um, Shabbat services was something that my family hadn't done. And I had started going to Hillel in my first year, and this happened during my second year. And so I was just starting to figure out, like, do I, do I belong in these spaces? You, um, you talk in the essay about how being a Jew of color sort of shaped your relationship, not just with Jewishness, but also your relationship and understanding of, of Israel and Zionism. Could you read a segment for our, for our listeners where, where, you, where you really encapsulate that? In Jewish spaces, my presence was always a question mark, too. My skin color meant I did not fit into any preconceived categories. I experienced a profound ideological disconnect between the Judaism I found at Hillel, the Jewish campus organization, 
and the lessons I had learned in a family of white Jewish labor organizers and black civil rights activists. Enacting solidarity at all times and identifying and struggling with the oppressed, honoring fellow sojourners. In Jewish spaces, I found that the primacy of Israel and Zionist ideology was preached side by side with otherwise progressive values. Palestinian humanity was nowhere to be found. It's such a powerful segment. And I, I wondered, having read it, whether you feel like um, that your experience of racism sort of enables you to see something about Israeli policy towards Palestinians that maybe other Jews who, have, who haven't experienced that kind of racism might not be able to see. Yeah, I think I, I can point to some formative experiences that I had. One, I grew up in Los Angeles primarily, and I went to school in what was then called South Central L.A., and so my school was closed during the Los Angeles uprising. I'm sometimes known to people as the Los Angeles riots after the Rodney King beating verdict. And when we went back to school, uh, when our school finally reopened, our teacher sat us down and said, if you don't like it here, go back to Africa. And I was nine, right? So uh, that, that was... I, I think, you know, very early on, we're already having these experiences of being told where we can be, where we can't be. And it, it's not easy for me to kind of adapt that feeling of being made to be an outsider and what you feel is your home, what the only home that you've ever known. Um, it's also the case that around that time, I went back and forth. I, I come from a, a Caribbean a family that's across the diaspora. At various points in my childhood, I went to school in London. And um, I have never experienced the kind of segregation that I experienced in my schools in London. And I mean, white students wouldn't talk to me. The schoolyards were completely segregated. Um, I had teachers make nasty and very direct racist comments to me and, and, and treat me differently. And with, with no repercussion, the teacher in Los Angeles, my mom organized with the other black parents for her to be fired, but that didn't happen in, in London where it was sort of normalized, right? And so I was having all of these experiences with being othered. And I think what's interesting is that I feel like if I talk to my white Jewish peers, they can also point to moments where because of Christian hegemony, they also had those kinds of experiences, right? Um, but I think... I had the benefit of being able to interpret what was happening to me through the larger analysis of racial justice movements in the United States and racial justice movements in the UK, which I think gave me a different perspective on how do we solve these problems, which is not that I leave Los Angeles. It's that we fight to make Los Angeles a safe place for people like me. Right. And so I, I don't think even really for me, the concept of there is a place where I can go that's supposed to be the safe haven was like a very foreign, like the idea of Zion, if we take it in like very broad terms, was a very foreign idea to me because the idea is that you make justice where you are, not you go and carve out a space for yourself somewhere else. And in, in effect, accept the discrimination as a given and subtract yourself out of the equation. Coming from a family of activists, no, we fight, we organize, we make justice where we are. What, what do you think, when you look at what's happening now, what's been happening since the 7th of October and the, the war in Gaza, what are the 
what what lessons do you draw from that for some sort of a I don't know resolution or end to what's happening there do you think is there something that you take from that I take I I don't know, this is like a hard thing to say at this moment, because so many people are suffering right now. And there are so many deaths. Um, You know, even I think one experience that a lot of us are having is watching people that we follow on social media die in real time, Uh, people that we relied on to get us news about what's happening. And I don't know if we have ever collectively experienced something like that before. So I kind of want to acknowledge that I'm still processing what that all means. I'm sure we're all still processing what what that all means. Um, when I think, I, I guess I have to say, when I think about October 7th as a marker, part of what I found myself dealing with in the immediate aftermath of October 7th and October 8th, et cetera, was how people kept saying it was unprecedented. And on the one hand, I understood what they were saying. And on the other hand, I was like, but just a couple of weeks ago, I was looking at violence visited on some Palestinians that looked similar to this, not necessarily in scale, but in terms of what happened to those individuals. And that I looked at those kinds of images on a regular basis. So I think what has been brought to the fore for people is when people say, I am part of a community, people are having to think through which community do they mean and where are your commitments and are there hierarchies of your commitments? And I think what's come to the fore for me, I I believe who lives and who dies is above the human pay grade. Like I simply I don't think that that is up to us. And that's my feeling about people making choices to take other people's lives is that it is not, we don't have the right to make that decision. Um, But I also, I think I feel as strongly about Palestinian deaths, whether they are Jewish or not. Um, For me, part of my maintaining my sense of humanity as I understand it through my Jewish values is that I am horrified about all of the deaths. And I I can't make that choice. And I think a lot of people right now are having to confront what they thought they believed about that, what they actually do believe about that, and what are the political implications of their beliefs and understanding that their beliefs about this actually have life or death consequences, because public opinion does have something to say about what happens next. And we can see that with the way that, um, you know, political messaging around this is shifting, celebrity messaging around this is shifting, that people are starting to see, oh, the public sees it this way. Our voices here really do matter. I think that that's a really important piece is that our voices here do matter. And so we need to dig deep and think about what our values teach us about what it means to to build a world that sanctifies life. And I think that that is our mandate as Jews is, and when we talk about tikkun olam and healing and repairing the world, it is to create the world in the image of sanctifying life. Thank you so much, Chanda, for joining us and for discussing your piece. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hi, Howard. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Where, where are you right now? Where are you speaking to us from? I'm, uh, I'm, I'm in London, in central London. Um, is it raining? I can't tell through the window. I'm sitting at my desk writing. 
The next piece we'll be discussing is by novelist Howard Jacobson. His essay for The New Statesman was titled, The Founding of Israel Wasn't a Colonial Act. A Refugee Isn't a Colonist. You contributed a very powerful essay to our collection on being Jewish now. Um, Your essay opens with the line, let's not beat about the bush, I am afraid and I am furious. Uh, The past two months have been very painful for many people. Would you be able to tell our listeners a little bit about your own fear and fury that you were referring to in that piece? I am afraid and I am furious and I'm lots of other things in between. And I find it very difficult to distinguish between those two states. I find it difficult to distinguish between anything very much in what's going on out there because so many things bleed into one another and need one to be saying two or three or four different things at the same time. And it's partly because there are a lot of voices out there which will not say two or three or four different things at the same time, who don't believe that there are three or four different things to say that I am angry. I am shocked at um, the monotone, the violent monotone of much that's being said out there. And and that's partly, um, that's enraging me because it's also frightening me because I wonder what it means to be living. Are we about to head into a world? Well, no, let me correct that. We have, we are already living in a world in which the expression of violent opinion and violent thought though it's scarce, much of it scarcely deserves to be called thought, is now commonplace. This is, I suppose, to do, we all blame social media, although it would be nothing without us on it, but it's got a lot to do with, with social media, the state of our universities. Something has happened to the idea of what a conversation is, um, let, alone a, a, let alone a debate, and there is much hate and uh, um, aggressive thought out there it's as though it's as though people have been and look i used to teach at a university uh, many years ago i haven't been near one for a long time i don't have time i miss them i love them i remembered them as being places where we argued with one another about everything at the moment the impression you get from many of them both uh, especially in america but also here is that disagreement is not allowed you in many of them that you are only allowed to believe one thing. And if you don't believe that one thing, people speak violently of you and whether they act violently against you, I don't know yet, but that's one of the things I fear, that there will be actual violence will be done. We all know that talking violence leads to the doing of actual violence. And the world for that reason, I think, is a very frightening place. Leave aside the fact that much of what's making the people I'm referring to in those American and English universities so angry um, is that they hold a position with which I don't agree. Um, But that's not my main worry. My main worry is that they hold it with such vituperation and such single-mindedness and such closed-mindedness. The premise of the of the of the invite to write was, you know, to reflect on being a Jew on the left at a time of rising anti-Semitism, and you question that premise in your in the in your piece as far as it applies to you you said I am of the left only to the degree that I am not of the right and you also said to cross a busy road you need to look left and right but I still I wanted to ask you still do you think and given what you just outlined about the state of of debate um, and the violence of language at the moment do you think there is a place for Jews on the left 
Yes, uh, I have to think that, don't I? I have to think there's a place for Jews uh, everywhere. What I want now is the left to remember that it has a magnanimous side as well as a furious side. Whether it's a Jew or anybody else, we have to have a left. Uh, without the left, where are we? So I want them there, but I want the left there to remember what it does well, its humanity. And although it thinks it's expressing humanity at the moment because it's outraged on behalf of one side, it's not expressing humanity at all because it cannot hear um, the reasoning, the thinking, uh, the pain, the anguish of the other side. And views on Zionism across the Jewish diaspora, as you, as you alluded to, now vary greatly. Um, and as listeners and readers will understand from reading this collection, could you read a section of your piece now for listeners on the founding of Israel? I don't call for supine obedience to Zionism from Jews, only that they get their own history right in a matter of such importance. Zionism wasn't a colonial enterprise, they should know that. In fact, Zionism wasn't any one thing. There were many Zionisms, some more idealistic than others, but the founding of Israel wasn't an act of colonial depredation. Fleeing from pogroms isn't colonizing. Returning to one's old home, as Jews had been returning to it for centuries, isn't colonizing. A refugee isn't a colonist. The building of settlements on the West Bank is indefensible. But as the Director General of the United Nations likes telling us, things don't happen in a vacuum. If something hard entered the Israeli soul, it was not unconnected to the seeming promise of an eternal war with a Palestinian people for whom coexistence with Jews appeared all but unthinkable. Hateful as they are, the settlements were not written into the small print of Zionism. They belong to history, not principle. Thank you so much for that. You, you reference the Six Day War earlier on in the piece. You say, we won't ever be forgiven for this, my then father-in-law said after Israel won the Six Day War. And later on you say, Judaism is a guilt culture. It feels like at the moment there's no clear roots out of the current war or even a sense that any side could win or that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict will even be resolved at any point. Do you think that Jewish people will still be feeling guilty or seeking forgiveness no matter the outcome of the conflict? Yes, I do. Uh, I do. Uh, you start from what you know of yourself. And uh, as I think about this every day, intensely and with great anxiety um, and sadness every day, I watch myself clatter between two extremes. Um, if the extreme of anger takes me, if I feel, and the anger I feel about this is I believe a lie is told about the founding of Israel. There've been many lies about the founding of Israel. I know that Israelis themselves had any narrative about the founding of anywhere is full of mythologies. That's what creation stories all are. The Israelis told themselves a very idealistic story about how the state of Israel was born. That story over time was and had to be corrected. The correction, like all corrections, went much too far in my view 
and many of the people leading that correction were Israeli scholars, the new history or whatever it called itself, um, unearthed, unearthed um, much history that wasn't known, but also didn't create a, a guilt in the Jews because it's always there, but it fueled a new a new uh, guilt in the Jews. You're talking about people like Benny Morris and Avi Schleim. And... Yes, yes. But it made it made Jews feel, what if Jews who loved Israel, Israelis themselves, what if this shining nation that seems to have done so much good was built upon a lie? Uh, what if uh, all this wonderful thing was built upon somebody else's land? What a terrible... I mean, that's, it's right that we should feel that, but what a terrible burden that is to bear when you think that the whole history of mankind is of the moving around and people moving onto one another's land and so on. People were shouting a, f a few weeks ago to the people who at the music festival on October the 7th were, were massacred by Hamas. And there were voices coming from universities saying, well, it's your own fault, don't party on stolen land. Uh, American, uh, no, no American, no American can talk about uh, the rights and wrongs of stolen land. Their land is, if we're going to talk in that language, their land too is stolen. I lived in Australia for a while. Australian land is stolen. Um, cruelly, not so cruelly. What do you do about this? You admit it. You admit it. You must, you must admit it. But if you torture yourself with it, you're never going to see the other side too, which is that the way in which one deals with living uh, maybe where you shouldn't be living, though the Jews have the other side of the stolen land argument is that Jews have been going to Israel for ever since they were kicked out of it. They've been going there and living there and seeing it as partly theirs. They've been not staking a claim to it, just assuming it's theirs for a long time. So you'll never get Jews um, except of the too easily anguished kind to think of it simply as stolen land. You, you end your piece with a line that I found very chilling to read. Um, you, write, you wrote, I'm more than furious and afraid, I am defiled. Could you explain for our listeners why you ended with that and in, in what way, as a Jew, you, are, you, you feel defiled? Jews have been living with libels and scandals for 2,000 years. Mad things have been said about Jews. Um, the idea that Jews were harvested, the oldest, one of the oldest lies is the idea that Jews were killing Christian children for their blood. And they were killing Christian children for their blood to mix in their matzah for, for Pesach, for Passover. That you, you can go to cathedrals to this day where you will see memorials to little martyrs who were reputed to have been murdered, murdered by Jews. All of those memorials now, most of them anyway, carry an apology. This was a libel from the church. We know it was a libel. We apologize. That was a libel. It's a libel which has been resurrected. It's been resurrected here several times. It was resurrected by a well-known politician a few years ago who said, I'm not saying this happened, but there are rumors that when the IDF went to help out in one of the earthquakes, that they'd gone there in order to harvest the organs of people killed in that earthquake um, to help save the lives of Israelis. It's a wicked, wicked slander. And it's come back. And it's come back now in the, it's horrible, it's vile, absolutely unbearable. But children do die in, in wars. 
how do you say that without it sounding, sounding callous? You almost can't, but children do die in wars. But it's the, the idea there's been a kind of propaganda, propagandizing against the Jew with the implication being that they are, that they are child killers. And to see the Jew, um, to see me, because I am a Jew, and, and my people and my friends and my family called child killers, child killers again, it's a, it's, a, it's a slander that's 2,000 years old, and if it can come back now in our world, will it ever go away? And the answer to that would seem to be, no, it will never go away. And I am defiled by being called a child killer now, in the past, and forever. To read the full essays from any of the writers on this podcast or to read the wider collection, please follow the link in the show notes. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Statesman podcast. I'm Alona Ferber. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.